Turn to Ephesians 5. Thanks to Josh Warren for teaching the class last week. Uh, heard it was great. I really do appreciate it. We were in Nashville for my brother Tyler's wedding, which was simply wonderful, uh, very encouraging. And I'll tell you just a little bit. There was a moment when I looked uh, after the first dance, my brother's dancing with my mom, and was just so moved and tapped my dad and said, you know, that's a lot of grace on display right there. And uh, it wasn't that long ago when many of you know, I mean, Tyler and I were just... uh, complete buffoons and uh, particularly had a terrible relationship with my mom. I mean, we said things to her that no one should say to another human being. And um, it's just embarrassing. I think by God's grace, He's allowed us to, just all of us, to forget that period of our lives. But uh, it was powerful to see the the joy and fellowship that we all had in Christ. And uh, just, it was such a uh, it, that picture of them dancing was just a powerful picture of God's grace. And really the whole weekend, Friday night, to sit there and see in such a short time just the fruit that God has grown um, in and around Tyler and Emily. I mean, it was, the, you know, mo- a lot of the people that served with them in China were there. and It was really something. And uh, if you're at a place in your life where you think things are, you know, all but lost, let me tell you more about that story and uh, what God has done and really how quickly. It's just uh, its amazing. Alright, we're back in Ephesians. Uh, I believe we are going to move on to chapter 6 after today, which means this is our last lesson in the marriage section, which runs through the end of chapter 5. So, follow as I read. Somebody glad? Yeah. Was that you? You better be, you know... Gearing up, buddy. Uh, I like the submission week. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, A lot to learn. Um, I'm going to read verses 31 through 33. So follow as I read. Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. This is the Word of God. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. So last time we chased verse 31 back to its roots and uh, then traced it throughout the Bible. It was first mentioned at the end of Genesis 2 uh, and not only in reference to the marriage of Adam and Eve, but um, for all ensuing marriages after that, uh, God was establishing the institution of marriage for all time. We saw that Jesus restated that verse in Mark 10 and Paul here in Ephesians 5, which shows us that nothing has changed about uh, God's design for the institution of marriage since the beginning of creation. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. So uh, let's start today by thinking a little bit about leaving and holding fast, or uh, the more familiar language might be leaving and cleaving, which comes from the King James. So uh, 
it's just a hangover from the glory days. But uh, the point is, uh, when a man is married to his wife, a new family is formed, and there's a sense in which the old ones are no more. I mean, of course, we're still a part of the families that we came from, but there is a clear transfer of primary allegiance uh, in a new family being formed. So mom and dad used to be primary allegiance, now it's husband and wife. That doesn't mean that's the way that we act. That just means that's the way that it is. That's the way that God has made it, and it's our responsibility to you know, get in line and uh, act that way. Now, granted, it's not always an easy transition, uh, if we're honest, a lot of times it's not even attempted. And, um, you know, we're not better for it. God's design is that we would leave and cleave. So, Tiffany and I spent the first two years of our marriage away, uh, living down on the coast, apart from both of our families, which I think served us well. Uh, it forced us to depend on each other more than maybe we would have otherwise. But with technology, what it is, you know, everyone's just a phone call or an email or text away. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, it was still difficult. It's, again, it's not to say that we shouldn't have a relationship with our parents, uh, but it is essential to cultivate that primary allegiance to our spouse. And uh, I had a harder time with this than Tiffany. Um, I was the one more likely to call mom or dad, you know, when something's going on and it, where it was Tiffany's desire for us to work through that first. And, you know, if we call on them for whatever it is, great. But uh, if we want to bring it in, them into it, it's a we thing. And, uh, again, that was harder for me. I think an area in our demographic where this is particularly difficult is leaving and cleaving financially. Um, it is typical for mom and dad to have money. Not always, but uh, in many cases. And in my observations and in my personal experience, um, the parents often have a hard time respecting boundaries that should be in place. So it's really up to the married couple to, you know, give some necessary pushback in those areas and establish proper boundaries. Um, the way we worked through this at first was, you know, if someone wants us to give us wants to give us a gift, a one-time gift, whether birthday, Christmas, whatever it is, uh, we were glad to receive that, and but we were not going to let anyone be paying our bills and you know getting tied up in the month-to-month -month, uh, payment and management of our resources. Some of you may have family members that want to give you an inheritance whether small or large. And to that, we should all be very thankful. Praise God. It's even a biblical idea, you know, an inheritance for the generations. But um, part of what it means to give an inheritance is, to, is the handing over of the authority or responsibility of leadership. And so I think what I've seen is there's a lot of closed-handed giving out there, uh, meaning here's this, and now let me tell you how to use it, you know. Which is not good. It should should operate more like here's this and here's our blessing with it and now use it as you guys decide, uh, as you see fit. And I see nothing but problems when the month to month, the bills and, um, you know, just piping in on how resources should be managed on the day to day, week to week, month to month. Uh, I see problems there with leaving and cleaving and I see problems there 
just in general. That's not saying anything about exceptional circumstances, job loss, and different things, and praise God for the way that He provides for us. But um, anyway. And then even if there's going to be a gift given, let's say it's by the wife's father. Um, that ought to be communicated through the husband. Because you know the father now needs his permission because there's been this transfer of primary allegiance. Uh, one of the worst cases, you know, just that I've heard of this that just kind of kills you a little bit inside, but there's a young husband, um, it was his wife's birthday, I think, and he had planned something, he had made something for her with his hands, took him lots of hours, he had made it at a friend's house and brought it over and, you know, just spent long time making this and really going to bless her. And they didn't have that much money. So it's like, hey, I can buy the supplies, make myself. And the time when she is coming home to see it, she drives up in a brand new car that her daddy just bought her. And uh, talk about castrating her husband. But, uh, you know, I think I died a little bit more inside just hearing it again. But uh, that's not good. Um, Another example... You know, I have a friend who was just in trying to lead his wife and family and leaving and cleaving. He decided that the grandparents weren't always going to be taking uh, the family on trips all the time. He wanted his kids to grow up learning a more simple life and than that what that would have been. Um, a life where he and his wife could work hard to provide those special trips if if God so afforded. And he just felt that was undercutting his leadership of the family. The point is, you don't have to agree with that. Um, But I think, you know, all of our situations are a little bit different and we just have to work through these things together. Again, the shift of primary allegiance, working through this together, what does it look like for us to leave and cleave? Uh, And we have to be thinking about it as parents too. And now's a great time to be thinking about it, particularly if there are these issues on this side of things that kind of rub us the wrong way. You know, make notes. Um, Note the things that you don't want to repeat. I think that's one of the ways that we get better generationally is just we we glean a lot of good things and then we maybe make some corrections in some areas. So, dads with little girls, uh, when you walk your daughter down the aisle you are handing over the leadership of her life to that youngin. Which means we need to do all of the protecting and preparing on this side of the altar because once she's his, she's his. Whether son or daughter, we need to be prepared to embrace that transfer of primary allegiance. And uh, we need to be preparing them for that day up until then. And those with boys, we have to raise up men to be able to handle that kind of responsibility at such a young age. I mean, you know, how old were you when you got married? I was 23. And to think about the kind of responsibility that you're taking on, you just have no idea. Maybe to have, you know, decent idea. But... uh, This is not just signing up to have sex all the time or, you know, to have a life partner. Uh, It's signing up to take responsibility for the leadership and care and nurture of someone's life and oftentimes some more someone's after that. Um, We're going to talk more about parenting when we get into chapter 6.
Back to the text. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, uh, this one flesh union is at least a reference to uh, sexual intercourse. It means more than that, but I mean, that's what it's picturing when it talks about that. That's how the marriage is consummated, to become one. Uh, and, and while we're here, something that we should note here is the order in which it falls. Husband and wife leave their families to commit themselves to one another in marriage. Before they have sex, the commitment comes before the consummation. And, uh, you know, boy, is that scoffed at you know, in the culture today, and sadly in many places in the church as well. Most of us did not live that way. Um, there's forgiveness for our sins. But, you know, unfortunately I think even still we just make light of God's commands in this regard. Um, you know, maybe if our kids don't get on drugs and, and you know, become alcoholics, but I mean if they're just having sex or whatever, you know, no big deal. But all of it is an affront to God and His commands. And I think when we think about, particularly in this area, we're kind of like Israel, um, grumbling and complaining about God and, and His ways and His parameters for our lives. And, you know, His commands, they just seem so restricting and they seem so burdensome. And we just have to remind ourselves, they are not burdensome. They are our very life. I think nowhere have we thought God's commands more burdensome than in regard to sexuality. But where has that led us? Not freedom. Turn to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's the fifth book in the Bible for those who need a little direction. I came across this recently. I want to show it to you. Uh, It says what I said a second ago, that God's commands are our very life. First I'll read Deuteronomy 30, 19, and 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days. God is your life. He is your life and length of days. Now turn to uh, 32. Deuteronomy 32, 46, and 47. He said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. It's interesting. God is our life. Chapter 30. God's Word is our very life. Chapter 32. All of it. His commands. Our very life. I love even both of those talking about instruction of our children and you know just this generational covenantal mindset as we think about all of God's commands, but, you know, sex and what are the things that are going to come up in their life, His commands are not burdensome. Uh, They lead us into life and freedom and joy. I think, you know, one of the things we have to do with our children, with ourselves, is to learn how to um, communicate these things and what does it mean that they're not 
burdensome. I've told you guys before about my friend Paul running down the riverbank when I was about to die, you know, but my first trip whitewater kayaking, I end up in the river with no boat. The boat's going down, and I'm about to ride a class four rapid with no boat. And, uh, you know, you get your leg caught in one of those rocks, you're dead. I mean, the water was very strong, and I'm just panicked. And I look over to Paul, and he's running down the shore shouting commands at me. Put your feet up! You know, you got to tuck. Don't get your feet caught. For someone like me, I mean, it'd be pretty easy to do, as lanky as I am. And so tuck into a cannonball, and he's like, and just ride! You know, thinking, oh, okay. I guess you don't have an option at that point. But, uh, of course, I make it down safely, and I'm just laying down there at the bottom, and he comes, gets me after he gets the boat. He did get the boat first, which was to make much sense. But I've often thought about that because that's like God's commands. You know, when, he, when I'm in danger and I'm looking at Paul... I'm not thinking, stop telling me what to do, man. You know, that's so oppressive and restricting. And just let me live my life. No, because if I get caught in those rocks, I'm dead. And I think we just underestimate the predicament that we're in. Sin and Satan prowling around trying to destroy us. And God's commands are our very life. Telling us the path of life, like how to survive and flourish. We're in serious danger. Uh, and, and God's commands are grace to us to, to show us the way to go. Again, nowhere have we lost our way and viewed God's commands as burdensome and restricting more so than in regard to sex. But let God be true and every man a liar. Let us repent of our sin and rejoice in the grace of God and rejoice not only in the grace of forgiveness, but also in the grace of His commands. A man shall leave his father and mother and, and commit himself to his wife for a lifetime before he holds fast to her and becomes one flesh with her. Alright, um, moving on in terms of the one flesh union. Our passage says that it is a profound mystery referring to Christ and the church. What does that mean? And, and we've seen these parallels, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and it's all throughout this passage. But all true marriage between one man and one woman is a representation of Christ and the church. Um, it's either a bad representation or a good one or, you know, somewhere in between. Certainly none of us are excellent representations of Christ and the church. But... The point is, marriage is about Jesus and His bride. And we are living pictures in our marriages of His marriage uh, to His bride. So, when we think about what it means to be one flesh, we need to start with Jesus and His bride and kind of work our way out from there to our marriages. So think about our life as Christians. From the time that we first trust in Christ for salvation, we are, uh, what the Bible would say, we are in Christ. We are united to Him by faith. We would never be able to come to the Father if we were not in Christ. Uh, We're not welcome in His presence without being in Christ. God is holy and righteous, and He demands that we be holy and righteous to be in fellowship with Him. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None is righteous in and of ourselves. But having put our faith in the One who is, the Father views us and welcomes us in Him. 
in Christ. He views us according to Jesus' all-sufficient payment for our sin. He views us according to Jesus' perfect, spotless righteousness, not according to our own sin. The debt has been paid and the transfer of righteousness has been made to our account. And we've been welcomed with open arms as sons and daughters into God's family in Christ. So as we think about our union with Christ, on the one hand, we're already united to Him. But on the other hand, there is uh, this relationship with Jesus that we have to continue to grow in and uh, nurture. We still have a lot of knowing and growing to do. We are not who we once were outside of Christ, but we are not who we will be either uh, when we are fully and finally uh, restored. So the same is true in terms of the marriage relationship. Uh, If you are married, you have already been united to your spouse. You have already become one flesh. And that doesn't just mean that you have had sex. Uh, That is how the marriage is consummated. But there's a more profound union that has taken place. God has knit you and bound you together. It's a profound mystery. It refers to Christ and the church. There's union there. There's union here. And uh, this is one of the things that we need to understand in terms of the way that we think about divorce. Now, if you've been divorced... There's grace for the forgiveness of your sins, and yet moving forward how we think about that, as anyone might consider that for themselves moving forward. So, um, you can sign a piece of paper all you want, but unless God unbinds what He bound, you will not be unbound. I like to think about it like if you have two pieces of construction paper. uh, What happens when you sleep with someone outside of the context of marriage is it's like taking those two pieces of paper and super gluing them together. Well, what happens when you pull them apart? You have pieces of one another all over each other. So, um, I think it's helpful when we think about the use of pornography or, or sleeping around you know, in our youth, and many think that's just child's play and kids being kids, but the reality is it's like super gluing bits and pieces of ourselves, our mind and our body and our soul all over the map. But what happens when two people are joined together in the covenant of marriage is even more than two pieces being glued together. Uh, It's as though God takes those two pieces and joins their fibers to make them one piece. And the only way the one piece ever becomes two pieces again actually is if God unbinds what He bounds, what He bound. If He gives blessing to... And there are situations where He does. There are biblical reasons for divorce and that sort of thing. But um, again, uh, just a helpful way to think about that. So, in terms of the Christian life, we are already united to Christ, yet we are still growing in Christ. And in terms of marriage, we are already one flesh, yet there's this other sense in which we have to seek to keep becoming one flesh, to cultivate the uh, one flesh union. And that's what I want to talk about for the next little bit, is uh, cultivating and growing that one flesh union in marriage. So we start where the text takes us in verse 33, which is a restatement of what has gone before in this section. 
I won't spend too much time here, but again, God made us, God made marriage, and He designed it to work a certain way. There is a divine order to the marriage relationship. We each have different positions with different assignments, and if we lose the order, we end up with chaos. So we have to start with the operating instructions. Uh, So many of our problems in marriage are because we refuse to embrace the positions that God has assigned us, head and helper, and then the differing assignments that go with those positions, sacrifice and submission or love and respect. Again, just to summarize what has gone before, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church when He died for her that He might sanctify her. Love your wife as you love your own body. No one ever hated his own body, but nourishes and cherishes it. So we must nourish and cherish our wives in the same way. Because, in a real sense, she is our body. We have become one flesh with her. And wives, respect your husbands, which is just, again, a restatement of submission respect. All right, another way to cultivate the one flesh union in marriage, even backing up from here, um, is to just grow our relationship with the Lord personally, individually. If uh, marriage is a picture of the Lord's relationship to us, then we had better get to know the Lord that we might know Him and His love for us so that we have a chance at imitating that in, to some degree in our marriages. I think I've showed you this in here, but Dave Hogue showed this to me. It's very helpful. But you got each of you down there at the bottom and the triangle God at the top. And what marriage is all about is each of you getting closer to God personally, relationally, individually. Uh, and the closer you get to one another, the closer you get to uh, the closer you get to Him, the closer you get to one another. You know, one of you might be growing, and praise God for that. But if the other one's not growing in relationship with the Lord, well, then you're still the same distance apart in your marriage. And uh, it's just a helpful, memorable thing. But you know, kind of chief priority is I've got to know Him and, and uh, grow in my relationship with Him so that I have a chance of being married the way that He designed me to be married. Related to this, another way to cultivate the one flesh union is confession of sin. Uh, one of the main ways that our relationship with Jesus has grown is in these cycles of confession of sin and repentance on our end, and then grace and forgiveness all the time, every time, applied from His end. And uh, our relationship with our spouse should follow the same pattern. You know, don't let the sun go down on your anger. We saw that earlier in Ephesians. A helpful illustration, uh, as I think of it, this came somewhere from Doug Wilson, but he talks about, you know, the problems in your marriage like toys in a toy room, and you have to pick up the toys as they fall. If you don't pick up the toys as they fall, before you know it, you've got to room full of toys and you're stepping on them everywhere you walk and it hurts. You know, you sweep it under the rug, it doesn't go anywhere. It's still right there under the rug. And so it has to be dealt with as it happens. Um, As often as we sin against one another to confess our sin every time, that day, you know, not to let the sun go down and to use that as an opportunity to pray together. That's a great way to start praying together out of just a need a need for God. That's humiliating. But that's good. I mean, we can bask in the glories of God's grace to us together. We 
are obviously aware that, that we don't deserve it in those moments. And that's exactly what grace is. We don't deserve it. It's a gift. But that's how we grow is, is God's grace being applied over and over again to our humbled hearts. And there's really no better place than in that humiliation and brokenness when you're sinning against one another than to stop and be humbled and broken and dependent on God and His grace. And He, he loves to apply it that way. And then in light of the forgiveness that He's given us every time, all the time, how many times? Every time. Um, we have to fight to forgive one another every time. Another way to cultivate the one flesh union in marriage is frequent sex. And uh, earlier I said this at least refers to sex. Uh, It is more than that, but it's an obvious reference to sexual intercourse. So, um, you know, if that's the way that we become one flesh, that's the way that we cultivate being one flesh. And look, this is not just a man up here hoping for the best. This is the Bible's instruction. Listen, some of you are familiar with this passage, but just listen as I read 1 Corinthians 7, 2-5. through And notice how it's cased in temptation. The beginning of this passage and the end talks about temptation. Because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each wife her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh pretty self-explanatory, but you know, maybe not the prayer part. Like, what does that mean? He's talking about this limited time where we're praying and then, but um, what about that? I mean, I don't know. Maybe think about it like a fast from sex for a month in order to read the Bible and pray together regularly. And, you know, maybe there's some brokenness in regard to sexuality in your relationship, but just to seek God for restoration together and, and that we would view it more appropriately and, and in a godly manner Um, but then come together again because Satan is prowling around and he's seeking to devour us all and temptation sexually is a big way he's trying to get at us. But the thing, as I think about in light of that text, I think we grow more accustomed to saying no to the other person than to saying no to ourselves in regard to sex. And if we look at that passage, the biblical paradigm is to say no to ourself and our desires in service to the other person. Your body's not your own. But not only sex. Um, There are many other important aspects of cultivating the one flesh intimacy. I don't think any one more important than the other. Um, I read a post from Desiring God this week, and the guy listed sexual intimacy as one of five. And so the four other ones that he mentioned were spiritual, emotional, intellectual, and recreational intimacy. That's a good start. Um, So spiritual intimacy, you know, setting a time where we're going to open God's Word and pray together. Maybe that's right after the kids go down. Maybe that's right when you get into bed. Start with five minutes. 
start reading through one of the Gospels together and read a half chapter or a chapter out loud. Alternate who reads. Brief discussion if you feel like it. Don't have to. Brief prayer to close out and repeat. And you know, it's okay if it feels rote and you know religious at first. We're after something very important and your heart will lock in eventually. Um, but it'd be a good discipline to start. Emotional intimacy. I mean, quality time, intentional conversation, intentional encouragement, thoughtful engagement that shows like I actually thought about this, you know, for a period of time before I engaged you. Guys, this is stuff we have to plan for. Uh, it doesn't come naturally. Listening with our eyes and our ears. Uh, intellectual intimacy, reading through a book together, um, stimulating, stretching, intelligent discussion about something that interests you, and maybe it only interests one of you, but that's a good time for the other person to sacrifice. Uh, recreational intimacy, just doing stuff together. You know, remembering what it was like to be dating. Even as something as simple as a regular walk together. You know, some of you are more intense than that, but uh, whatever works, I think the key is lighthearted enjoyment together. And uh, the thing about all this is they really do complement one another. You know, you can't like say, well, now we're doing spiritual intimacy because all of these kind of bleed together. Um, you spend time together working on recreational or intellectual intimacy, you're unknowingly working on emotional intimacy, which feeds sexual intimacy. And, you know, spiritual intimacy feeds emotional and sexual intimacy as well. And sexual intimacy is not just physical, but it's very emotional and spiritual. So for those of us who are married, we are whole human beings with all of these aspects to, to who we are, uh, spiritual, emotional, physical, intellectual, recreational. And uh, we are joined together to another whole human being. There are many different ways to cultivate this one flesh union. It takes work, but it is hard work that is worth it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Lord Jesus, there are um, very few places in our lives that expose those of us who are married um, like marriage does. And we come to see very quickly that whether we thought we had arrived in other areas in our life, we were mistaken. And um, we sin against one another, whether sins of omission or commission, not doing things we should or doing things we shouldn't, Lord. And uh, we thank You for Your grace and mercy. We thank You that the Gospel is so intimately tied to marriage that we might get to it quicker to remember Your one-way love for us, Your complete sacrificial love for us, Your uh, complete gift of uh, Your righteousness that we might be welcomed into the family of God. And we pray, Lord, that that the Gospel might empower us and uh, enlighten us and uh, instruct us in the way that we should go in our marriage. I do pray that you would um, grow healthy, godly marriages and families in our group and beyond, that they might testify to your grace and uh, your glory. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, we're moving on from the marriage section. So, if you've got questions or thoughts, now's your time. And in all honesty, these things come back up even after Ephesians 5, you know, just in our lives. So, please know that I'm always here to work through any of these things. But, um, anybody have any thoughts? Question? I, I think uh, we talked about it a little bit on the way to church about just trying to be content in our situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being content and being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think when, like in marriage, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think just, you were talking about, uh, you know, husband and wife leaving and leaving and I think about my friends or even, you know, my parents and my all the whatever. But uh, where we, we, uh, we want our lives to be comfortable. We want our kids to be comfortable. And we have options. We have choices. If this situation is not working, whether it's money and stuff or friends or relationships, um, and I think that that comes into play with, with marriage, right? It thinks should always be easy. And if it's not, mm-hmm. we need to change something. We have all these options. Yeah. Um, so I guess that was... Some of my thoughts, I was just thinking about, I don't think I've equipped our kids to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, I fix it all because they're kind of annoying when they're uncomfortable. So I fix it. Yeah. <laughs> so what kind of adult does that make? Sure. And I'm probably that adult. You know, I, I want to fix everything. Right. So I can. Uh, Well, those are good thoughts and good things. I mean, and I like your initial point too, just about contentment and where where God has us right now. Uh, I was reading something else and it just talked about in terms of, okay, husband, dad, how do you lead your family uh, ahead from where you are? Well, we start with gratitude, thankfulness. You know, we tend to think that's like a, that's being unthankful is the root of all kinds of other big sins you know, you read Romans 1 and you see all this crazy culture going on. Well, what is the root of all that? It's not thanking God and honoring God. And so I think a way to cultivate, cultivate has been said a lot, but, you know, to uh, prime our hearts for that contentment is to thank God right where we are. You know, mess and all. It's crazy. And I thank you that this is where you've placed me. I thank you for my wife and my family. I thank you. Or... If you've just listened to six plus weeks of a marriage series and you're not married, you know, to to prime your heart in that gratitude to God for where He has you right now. And, and thank you for where you have me, for your purposes, for reasons beyond I don't know. And um, But just to, you know, it's one of the best things that we can pass on is uh, thankful in all circumstances, you know. And then learning to adjust as we go. But all of us, especially in a series like, I mean, we look at our lives and we go, oh boy, you know, there's still work to do. But we're going to feel that the rest of our lives. I mean, there's always going to still be work to do, and that's good. Contentment, that's important. Anyone else? Going once? All right. We're done. Have a good day.